Greetings. Welcome to the Wednesday night study. Seems like most people I've talked to today, yesterday, and the day before are just sleepy. Is anyone just sleepy today? Raise your hand if you're sleepy. Okay, so my theory is correct. This is going to be very hard. Fantastic. Well, we're talking about certainty tonight. And so uh, there has to be a certain liveliness to talk about certainty because certainty is kind of a particular thing that you have to be awake to grab a hold of. So I want to encourage you all to dig deep. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into Second Peter. So let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, I confess that along with apparently the majority of this room, I'm sleepy and I'm tired. And um, Lord, we, we don't want that to be a distraction. And so we kind of we surrender that to you as best we can. And I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunities you give each of us. I'm thankful for the opportunities we have at work. I'm thankful for the opportunities we have with our families, with our spouses, with our children. And, um, but I know that all that can add up to just make people tired, especially this time of the year. So as we have this study and just three more after this, and we will have had the privilege of teaching through and studying through the entire Bible, I pray that we would um, keep in mind what a privilege that is. And I pray that we would keep in mind the fact that this is about your glory. And I pray that particularly tonight, Lord, that we would keep in mind that a proper knowledge of you is very, very important in the way of salvation. So Lord, as we study tonight, we humble ourselves before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are survey studies, and we're hitting about one a week right now. Next week, we're going to do something we've never done before, and we're going to study we're going to cover three books in one night. We're going to do 1 John, 2 John, 3 John all next week. So it's going to be kind of a, a crazy blaze of, of 1 and 3 John. But tonight we're in 2 Peter. And um, before we dive into that, if I was wanting to talk to someone or consider a study personally on humility, what might be a good book for me to go to? Philippians. Do you see that's the benefit of these survey studies? Just bam, oh, humility, Philippians. And what if, what if we were working through something and we needed to talk about good biblical leadership? First Timothy. And if we wanted to talk about forgiveness, what might be a good story to engage? Philemon and Onesimus, yes. And if we were just talking about sort of the practicalities of faith that works, where might we go? James. And if we wanted to talk about new life, what book might we read? Man, I wasn't sure if anyone was going to get that, and y'all did. That was good. Um, and then, uh, what about sticking with the best, not looking for other options other than Jesus? What, what book might that be? Hebrews, there we go. We spent a lot of time in Hebrews as a church. So that brings us to Second Peter, which is a book uh, largely, largely about certainty. So before we dive into the text, I kind of want to open with the question of what are some ways that you have heard answers? Maybe they were your questions, maybe it were someone else's questions. What are some answers you've heard regarding questions regarding certainty of salvation? How can I know that I'm saved? What are some ways, what are some answers you've heard to that question? How can you know that you know that you know? You can't. Some people would say that you can't. 
Okay? You can't know? Yeah. Yep. Prayed a certain prayer or walked a certain walk down a certain aisle. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you know that you know. What are some other ways that question's been answered? Certainty of faith. I just know it in my heart. Yeah. And if you tell me otherwise, I'm sorry. My heart is telling me I am. What else? Did you mean it? Did you really mean it? Did you mean that you mean it? Uh-huh. Yeah. You can utilize Scripture, obviously, to affirm or not affirm that you are following Christ and saved. What are some other things y'all have heard? What are some questions related to that that y'all have heard over the years? Can you lose your salvation? That's a very related question. What else? Can you gain salvation for someone else? Yeah. I've heard that question from parents who deeply desire that their children would be saved. Can I do something to assure that my child is saved? What are some other questions, other topics around this issue of certainty? Yeah. Is once saved, always saved a thing? Yeah. Are there other ways to be saved? Is Jesus the only way? Apostasy. What is apostasy? Yeah. Can you bounce back from apostasy? Can apostasy be healed? This book... Um, is all about certainty because these were questions that were questions like these questions and questions like these were a struggle for this church or these these churches that Peter is writing to. Our outline for the night is going to be four things. There's four things that are make up our outline that Peter tells us we can be certain about if we want to live the life that God calls us to live. Four things that Peter tells us that we can be certain about we need to be certain about if we want to live the life that God calls us to live, which obviously is a life of salvation, a life that is in Christ. The first thing is found in 1-1 through 11, and it's be certain of your call. The first thing is to be certain of your call. So this certainty that we're looking for, he's saying, well, in order to have that, you have to be certain of your call. In order to know that you are in Christ, in order to know that you have salvation, that you are saved, you have to be certain of your call. And it says in 1, 1 through 11, Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, uh, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So what, what do we learn about faith in that little opening uh, line? <coughs> Obtain it through Christ.
What is he saying to these struggling sinners who are wondering if they made a bad decision about their salvation, about who they're following? Yeah, he's saying your your salvation, your faith is of equal standing with ours. Now, before we go any further, let's go back to last week's study, because this, we we learn in chapter 3 that he says, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, and we can assume that the first letter was 1 Peter. And so we can assume from that that this letter tonight is to the same group that he wrote to last week. Who was here last week's study? Raise your hand so I can call on you. Oh, okay. All the hands went down. Um, what, what was the struggle last week that was being addressed? Suffering. Suffering. And, and how did Peter address it? You're suffering with Christ. Yep. What else? Say that again. Yep. Tempers your faith. How did he answer the question, why do Christians suffer? To strengthen their faith? You're called to it? It's a gracious thing. And why are they suffering? For doing what? For doing right. That would have been a serious and significant affirmation for them to know we're not suffering because we made the wrong decision. We're not suffering because we're doing what's wrong. We're suffering because we're doing what is right. You're doing what is good. That's why you are suffering. So why does that happen? God has chosen them to be his special people. It means they're holy, uh, strange. Um, we're called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And it's not just something that may or may not happen. You are, that's part, it goes hand in hand with your calling as one who belongs to him, is that you are called to, to suffer with him. Uh, we went to Matthew, we went to 2 Timothy, we went to John, seeing that suffering is the very call that has been issued to you in Christ. And the reason we, we have to make sure we understand that is that if we don't understand that suffering is part of our call, we will never be willing to make sacrifices when it comes to our faith when it comes to the forward movement of the kingdom of God. So it's not only um, suffering that's in store for us, but there's immense blessing. So the same uh, letter that he wrote here, he ended it with making sure that they knew that what should, what should suffering Christians do? You'd be holy, you'd be witnesses, and you'd be loving. And so th- those are things that they were working through from the first letter, to be holy, to be witnesses, and to be loving. And we went through an exercise last week where we said, well, what if you're loving, but you're not holy and you're not witnesses? Or what if you're holy, but you're not witnesses and you're not loving? Or what if you're witnesses, but you're not loving and you're not holy? And you see a severe imbalance when those things are gone. So holiness, love, and being a witness go together. And that is the same group that is being written to in this letter. So um, that helps us to get our footing a little bit as we continue to read in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, 
Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, to confirm your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to be certain of our call is the first thing. And this, um, this picture of election, um, obviously there are some different views on this when it comes to election and predestination and God choosing people. Because if God chooses some, there's an indication that, well, God, does he not choose others? And then that's very uncomfortable because when you start talking about it, um, the natural question might be, well, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm just fooling myself? And so here it's really interesting because people who believe in election believe in the sovereignty of God. And sometimes they take that belief to an extent where they'll say things like, well, if God's going to save who God's going to save, then what's the point in evangelism? What's the point in you know, or sharing the gospel? What's the point in reaching out to the lost? If God's going to save them, he's going to save them. So what's the point? And what we see here is, yes, God is completely sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he tells you to make your election sure. You make your election sure. I mean, just the nature of election would seem like, well, doesn't he make it sure? Well, yes, he makes it sure. And as he does so, part of the calling is for you to make it sure. You have to be certain of your call. So making sure that we're Christians requires us to conceptually hold on to two ideas at once. It is God who calls, and it is God's call on us. So first, let's look at it as God who calls. 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It is God who calls. What, what is revealed about that call in verse 3? How did it start? Who picked up the phone first? He did. Yeah. It's important to understand that it is God who calls, which means it's not a self-generated call. Uh, I was on a discussion board recently, and one of the guys on the discussion board uh, was explaining, um, some, we've talked about this before, uh, it may not be new to y'all, maybe new to some of y'all. There's an old photo that I really liked in Sunday school growing up, and it was this garden, and it was a door, and if you look close, the door and the bushes made the shape of a heart, but the thing was, there was no doorknob on the door, and there Jesus sat with no doorknob to open the door to our heart. And so the whole point of the painting was that the door doesn't have a knob on the outside, because it's on the inside. 
And so the, the, the message was, you know, he might be knocking, he might be waiting, but ultimately you got to open that door and it's got to be sort of this self-generated thing, salvation. And so I was on a discussion board recently in one of my uh, seminary classes and this guy just kind of went off on how beautiful of a picture that was. And I responded very gently um, <laughs> with like, no, I, I, I wish it would say more what I needed, which is kick the door open and rescue me from death. That's, that's what it is. Sort of the, um, the whole, you know, you were drowning and God threw you a life vest, but you had to grab it. No, you were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. He, breathe, he rescues you, pulls you out, breathes into you the breath of his son, counting his son's righteousness as yours, and then you're saved. You didn't do anything. You were saved by grace through faith alone. So this call here, um, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not that his divine power grants to us most of the things we're going to need, but we're going to have to do some, some of the generating of what we need. No, anything you have according to the call and according to your salvation comes from his divine power. So we know that this call, it is God who calls because the call is not self-generated. And then in 1, one through 2, we saw that to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, we know that it's not self-based. It's not based on who you are. It's based on who God is. It's not based on you generating it. It's, it's not self-generated. It is God-generated. And finally, as God calls, 1-3, we learn that it's not self-sustained. It's His divine power. So it's not self-generated. It's not self-based. It's not self-sustained. So first... If we're going to make our calling and our election sure, which is what this letter is saying, make your calling and your election sure, it requires us, um, we must see that it's fundamentally not of us because it is God's call based on the righteousness of someone else, the righteousness of Jesus. But it is God's call on us. So look at 110. Therefore, that, that therefore is important because it points back to all that God has done, generated in God, based in God, sustained in God. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If someone was giving you an inheritance, you might think, man, that's awesome, great, free money, whatever. But if someone says, okay, you need to be diligent about something, you should pay attention because that diligence might not be something that you would equate to this thing that's been done for you completely outside of you, not generated by you, not based on you, not sustained by you. Be diligent. About what? Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. So there is a diligence in the life of the called in which the one who is called confirms the calling and confirms the election for... How does that work? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we make it sure? How do we make our calling sure? How do we make our election sure? Practice these qualities. Practice these qualities. What's another way of saying practice these qualities? 
Do what? Live them out. What's another way to say live them out? Part of your nature. What's another way to say that? Do good stuff. Do good. So I, I guarantee my salvation by doing good then, right? Is that what that says? Okay. I, 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 I couldn't achieve it, but I hold on to it by doing good. Is that right? It's evidence. By what we do. We do not save ourselves by doing good. Look at 1, 8 through 9. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. And then up in 5, it says, these, these qualities that we're talking about, just so it's clear, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. I, I want to walk through this because that, that's one of those lists where it's like, man, that sounds good, but that, like, if you just read that fast, that could sound like a bunch of different words for the exact same thing. So I want to take a minute to kind of break this down for this very reason. God has called and elected you cleansed you of your sins. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So faith is this gift that we have from God, and we are supposed to make not just a light effort, not just a minimal effort, not just an occasional effort. Every effort that is available to you, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What is virtue? Goodness. So what does it mean to supplement your faith with virtue? A live faith is proven by this virtue, this goodness. So that's one example. If someone has a need and you can supply the need, but you're a believer and you have faith and you just say, be warm and well fed, I trust God will provide for you, that's a sign that there's something wrong because the faith is not connecting to this virtue and this good act that you should have been doing. What are some other examples of not bridging that gap. We're supposed to make every effort here. What are some other examples of not making the, eff- the effort and bridging the gap from faith to virtue? Not Say that again? Not sinning. not sinning? Explain that. Yes. Yes. What's another example of not connecting faith to the virtue? Not being a good disciple and witnessing to others. So I believe it, but I'm not going to share it. What's another example of not supplementing the faith with the virtue? Yeah. Yeah. Just barking orders at your kids. Not modeling that which you might demand of them in faith. 
What are other ways where faith doesn't get supplemented with virtue? Yeah, Lone Ranger Christians. Who needs the church? I got me and Jesus. Okay, you got faith. But the virtue, the virtue is not there because you're not following through with what he said. What's another one? Yeah, not being good stewards of the resources that God's given you. I have, I have faith in God's provision, and, and I believe him, and I believe everything he says about money, and no one's getting any of mine. If we, are, if we say we have faith, yet we lack the virtue financially, there is a breakdown. What I'm wanting us to see is we could spend the whole rest of the night considering just the ways where faith fails to be supplemented by virtue. But if faith is supplemented by virtue, and then virtue is to be supplemented with knowledge, how does virtue... How is virtue supplemented with knowledge? What's another way of saying that? Yes, if you don't know what pleases God, you don't know what good works are. Have you ever read something in the Bible and been like, I didn't know I needed to do that? And then you decided to do it and found a difference. Has that ever happened? Oh my gosh, I hope that's happened with every one of you. That's the Christian life. I read things in the Bible and they ch- Yes. Yes. Yeah. Can't learn to love something that you know nothing about. I mean, Titus is one of those areas, right? Where it says, older women teach younger women to love their husbands. I've known a lot of couples that have had a lot of struggles. And when I take them to that, they're like, whoa, hold on. There's older women who can teach younger women how to love their children and their husbands. You can, you can teach that? I thought love was just this thing that happened naturally. It's like, no, that's why you hate each other. It doesn't just happen naturally. Love is work. If you will to love someone, you can love someone. It is an act of the will. It's not just a silly emotion. But when you connect that, then it's like, whoa, hold on. I, then that's, that's helpful because I can learn to love. I can be taught to love. There's room to teach people how to love their children and how to love their husbands. And so... That would be one area where, man, if, if you didn't know that was a possibility, um, why would you pursue it? What are some other things where biblically, if you didn't know they were a possibility, why would you pursue them? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Isaiah 58 says, pour yourself out for the afflicted and your gloom will be turned as to the noon day. It's this beautiful verse that says, um, if you're depressed and you're struggling with darkness, do something for other people. Serve other people. Ask about other people. Pray for other people. Because what you'll find is that you're only focused on you and what you want and what you can get and you're just take, 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 take. That's not usually the happy, joyful people in Christ. So we supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Why do you think they follow up knowledge with self-control? Hey, stop sinning. Okay, arrogance. What do you mean by that? Okay, fighting against arrogance. Yeah, like stop being arrogant. 
Okay, that's going to take self-control, right? Okay, I hear that arrogance is bad. I hear that God uh, humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. And, and, and I see that and, and yet I'm still proud and I'm still arrogant or whatever it might be. That's going to take self-control, which is why accountability is so important. Because it's like, oh, I see this thing that I'm not supposed to be doing and this other thing that I am supposed to be doing. And it's not usually just enough to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to buckle down, grab both bootstraps, and I'm going to start giving at least 10%. And I'm not going to talk to my wife that way anymore. I'm not going to talk to my kids that way anymore. And I'm not going to look at inappropriate things. And I'm not going to let my speech be corrupting to other people. And I'm going to, I'm going to take every thought captive. I'm going to take every thought captive all by myself from here on out. Like that, it is lots of self-control. And then it says in self-control with steadfastness. Because if like a moment of self-control is great, but, but the goal is many, many moments of self-control, which is steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. I love that, because isn't that what the picture of godliness is? This picture that, no, I'm not going to do the fleshly things. I'm going I'm to submit to the Spirit. I'm going to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to let my speech be of a certain way, and my thoughts be of a certain way. And I'm going to let my marriage be what God says, and I'm going to parent that way. And before you know it, that you, you're looking more like God than you ever have before. You can never be God, but godliness is certainly something that is, that is heralded here. And look at this. What does it say? And godliness with what? Brotherly affection. Why do you think brotherly affection comes right after godliness? Yeah. As what? As Christ loved the church. The very love of God, this love that exists between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this dance, this perichoresis, reaches out and pulls other people in. So it's so fitting that right after you get to this point of godliness, he says brotherly affection, because all that godliness is supposed to reach out and grab others and help others and consider where others are. And then so you see this brotherly affection that is supplemented with what? With love. Brotherly affection is not going to go very far without love, right? Love endures. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love sustains. Love overlooks. You're going to need that when you're trying to exercise brotherly affection in this godliness. But it's interesting because sometimes we just think we can love people the right way, but what we see here is there's sort of this this faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness that leads to godliness. And that's when you're better fit to love people. That's when you're better fit to love people. It doesn't mean you have to be perfectly godly to love anyone, but I guarantee that the more godly you are, the more loving you'll be to others, and it will be a, loving, uh, a lovingness that is rooted in truth. So here we see godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. So they can't just be yours. You can't, it's not a checklist. This is a wonderful list, but it's not a wonderful checklist. Because you can't be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Faith, check. Virtue, check. Knowledge, check. I know some stuff. Self-control. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to half check that because I need to work. No, it's not a checklist. Because what we, say, what we see here is if these qualities are yours and they're increasing. 
I have often wondered if it is not God's design that our final day of life on earth is our most godly. It's something I've thought about because we see this thing in Scripture that says, these, these are yours, and they're increasing. Sanctification is a process of becoming more and more Christ-like throughout the course of your life. So whether it's the way it's supposed to be or not, we can at least put some things together and say, you know what? At the end of our lives, hopefully, these are qualities that have been increasing our entire lives. We're, we're, we're as loving as we've ever been, godly as we've ever been, self-controlled as we've ever been. It's not fitting that when you're in your 60s and you look back and you have absolutely no self-control of the same thing you had a lack of self-control of in your 20s. You should be able to have these benchmarks and look back and say, okay, I have certainty. And that certainty comes from the fact that God's work in my life is evident by the fact that I have these qualities and they are increasing. And if they're increasing properly, you will not be prideful about it. You'll be humble about it because you know that it is of the Lord. So it's God's call on us. What we do is important. Once saved, always saved um, is, um, I would say, once saved, always being saved as you are ever increasing in these qualities. So we have to be certain of our call and we have to be certain of truth. Look at what it says in one twelve. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. That, that you have. So that's why you still hear sermons on like love and self-control and knowledge. That's why we still have Bible studies on things that are... So that's why you never graduate from John 3.16 or some of the more basic, simple, obvious, foundational truths of Scripture. Because God says, remind one another of these things. Peter's testimony is factual. It says uh, in 16... For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At the, there's, we, we hear words like that at the baptism of Jesus, the tran- and as well as at the transfiguration. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's referring to the transfiguration there. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that Peter's testimony is factual. We're certain of the truth. We're not certain of Peter's view of the truth. Peter was reporting what the Father himself said about Jesus. He was simply reporting what he heard, not what he thought he heard, not how he feels. And that testimony is factual because it's a testimony that is from God, as we just read in 20. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. One of the things about Scripture is, you know, the main tenets of a good Bible study, according to Howard Hendricks, is we observation, interpretation, and application. You spend most of your time in observation, looking at what is there, asking questions of the text, what are the words, looking all these things up, and then when you get to interpretation, there's one proper interpretation. If you say to someone, well, that's your interpretation, 
and this is my interpretation, and maybe we can both be right, in the moment that you would assume that you could both be right, you assume something that is not true. There's only one proper interpretation of Scripture. No uh, prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Why? Because the source is valid. God is a good source, and He means what He means. He doesn't give you truth and say, now, take it to mean whatever you like. So Peter is sharing things that are factual. Peter is sharing things that are from God. Now, sometimes when people say there's a different interpretation, sometimes, not all the time, they might actually mean it's just a different application. Because we can study things, it means what it means, and then God might call you to do something with Scripture while he calls me to do something different with Scripture. That's totally acceptable. But what we have to always consider is there are not many different interpretations. Otherwise, this is just a very emotional, you know, drivel, you know, brought down to pop psychology at its best because we can just say what we want and and do what we want with it. But Peter's testimony is factual. It's from God. So number one is we're certain of our call. Number two, be certain of the truth. And number three, be certain of this. Be certain that false teachers will give false assurance. Wouldn't it be nice if all the false teachers were like, I don't know, just kind of unsure, kind of wishy-washy, hem-hawing around the, whatever they're teaching. That would be easy to dismiss. Imagine if you saw an infomercial, right? Someone's selling a product. You know, no, yep. Has everyone seen an infomercial? This is a valid illustration we're all connecting with. It's like, this product is, I think it's all right. I, th- I think it'll, it, when you get it, it's, it's probably going to work. It's probably not going to break. It's probably, it's probably going to do like you know, most of what we said. You're not going to buy into that because the person's unsure. I mean, when you go and buy a car, do you usually hear from someone who's unsure about if you need that car? You usually hear they're absolutely certain that this is the exact car that you need. And they want to know what, what they can do to earn your business that day, in that moment. And, and they're going to push, and they're sure and if you have any questions about it, boom. Uh, there's an answer for every question. And it'll make you more successful and more attractive. And, it, yes, people will like you more. you probably get a better job because you're not driving the piece of junk you pulled up in. Yeah. False teachers will always give false assurance. Assurance, but false assurance. Two sa- chapter 2 says, But false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So what Peter's saying here, that first phrase, among the people, is referring to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were prophets of God, and alongside the prophets of God were false prophets. Anyone in this setting would know that history and be able to look back and say, oh, okay. So there were false prophets in the Old Testament, but now in this new church, are there still going to be false prophets? And Peter's emphatically saying, yes, in the exact same way. These truths about Jesus will be twisted and people will use them to serve their own purposes. So just as false prophets arose among the people, the Old Testament Jewish people, just as there will be false teaching among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. It's good to remember that these heresies are not um, neutral. Neutral. They're, they're going to have a negative, bad, destructive effect. Even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Yeah. They wear like dark colors and everything. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, that's people-pleasing. Yeah. I want you to like what I say more than what I say being actually true. And usually, that, that comes to fruition when you're trying to give assurances to people that you were never given the authority to give. I mean, I, you know, I, I watched a... I did a funeral one time for uh, a woman who had eight kids, grown kids, and there was one who was an atheist. And he got hit by a car and killed. And so out of her eight children, there was one, and that was the one who got hit by a car and killed. And I didn't know the family real well. I knew one member, but I didn't know all of them well. And I just thought, oh, man, Lord, what do I say here? I mean, because there's that proclivity that 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 thing in you that's like I just want to comfort them and I think the only thing that's going to comfort her is to say hey you know what who knows what God did in his heart in those last moments uh who there's a possibility that you know and I'm sitting here kind of wrestling over that and because I think that there's a natural inclination that we have to want to 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 bring comfort the way we think comfort should be brought and it's and it's people-pleasing and that woman came up to me at the right before we were, I was meeting with the family. And I was just trying to be real sensitive and want to kind of hear where they were to figure out, you know, do, I don't want to lean too hard. But I also, I got to speak truth. That, that's, that, that is non-negotiable. So, and she walked up to me and she said, my son was an atheist. I want you to know that before you go preaching this funeral and say something that's not true. It's like, that is not what I was expecting to hear. And then she looked at me, and it was probably like one of the just most faithful moments I've ever seen in my life. This old lady in her late, I think she was in her late 80s. She said, my son did not love God, but I love God enough to trust him with my son's eternal um, state. She said, I trust God to judge my son properly. I was like, man. Her faith is huge. I mean, her faith is huge, but in those settings, my gosh, there's so many times where it's like, I just want to tell people what they want to hear. I mean, there's, you know, especially when it comes to children or a child dying or something like that, it's a lot easier to just say, no, everything's good, rather than, you know what, you can trust God. God is utterly trustworthy. He is he's only love. He's, he's only holy. He is perfectly balanced in those things in a way that we can't comprehend. But yeah, these false teachers will give these false assurances. It says, many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you 
with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here's two characteristics of the false teachers. Look at 2.10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. It says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. One thing about false teachers is they're spiritually confident. There's a confidence there. They'll usually waver far less than someone who might actually be struggling with the truth. There's a confidence with false teachers. They have an answer for every single question. And they will emphatically stand against truth if it means holding on to their narrative. Just today I was reading an article on if Texas schools should teach other theories than evolution. And man, the comments were just... It's not a theory, you Christian morons. Creationism is stupid. Go back to the Middle Ages. School your children and give us our tax dollars. I mean, it was confidence that they were so right and that there couldn't hardly be another theory worth teaching than the theory of evolution. There's a confidence that is characteristic of false teachers. There's also a carnality. They're regularly carnal. Look what it says in 2.13. Suffering wrong is the waitress and the counter pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Now, I, want, I don't want my illustration to confuse you. We're talking about people not on Facebook or whatever or out in whatever media world. We're talking about people in the church. These are False teachers who make their way into the church, reveling in the daytime, blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. That's, usually, that's probably an illustration of, or an allusion to the supper. So they're, they're breaking bread with us on Sunday mornings. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Something I want you to see as we're reading through these verses, when you go back to this first chapter where you see this faith supplemented with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with 
self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and you see this growth in godliness. As we're reading through these, these false teachers come in and they target those who are weak. Write in your notes, the weak are vulnerable. Because that will, that will propel you to not be weak and to not let your children be weak. And to not let your brothers and sisters in Christ be weak, you will care more about accountability. You will care more about studying the Word. You will care more about being here on Sundays and hearing the Word and making sure you're not just being a hearer, but also a doer. The vulnerable, the weaker vulnerable, that's a reality in the church. Because there's people that will promise them freedom, but they, the people who promise it are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Talk about sobering text. Very sobering. The false teachers are regularly carnal. Characteristic of heresy. Why do you think carnality, particularly what we just talked about, is sex, money, and dishonesty? Sex, money, and deceit. Why do you think it is that false teachers characteristic of heresy are regularly marked by the characteristics of sex, love of sex, love of money, love of that which is untrue. What do you think the connection is there? Focus on self? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great observation. It almost looks like they got to the point of knowledge and rather than supplementing it with self-control, they took knowledge and twisted it and used it to their own gain, financial gain, preying on those who are weak because the weak are more vulnerable. What else? Why, why else do y'all think that that is this carnality? I mean, you're, you're thinking about false teachers in the church and I'm sitting here going, why did Peter point out that they're confident and they love sex, money, and dishonesty? Like, I, I would think he would get into the, the nooks and crannies of theology, right? Like, he, it's, it, you, would, you might think that he would get into some, some clarity over doctrine when he's talking about these false teachers, but he wants us to know how they are characterized. What, why do you think that's such a connection? No accountability. Yep. Yeah. 
There, there are often pastors who are installed in churches who were not vetted properly. They simply had a following. They simply had a lot of views online or some good sermons that sounded strong or there was, they came from a big congregation. You know, it's funny. Rarely will you see a big church hire someone who didn't come from a big church. It's interesting. Oftentimes, you'll see people installed into the office of pastor and they didn't, no one even talked to their wife or their kids. Like, the way that my kids act, if my kids become so unruly that I do not have control over my household, I can't be a pastor. It, I'm disqualified. I can't say, no, 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 I really want to be. <laughs> well, um, your kids are disqualifying you. It's like, wait, that's not fair. They can disqualify me. I, I didn't disqualify myself. Yes, you did. You're responsible for them. But there's, there's pastors that are installed, not even meeting with their wife. Are y'all living together in an understanding way? Are you washing her with the water of the word? Is she a woman of integrity? Can she hold the mystery of the faith? What is she like with the children? I mean, those are things pastors should be significantly scrutinized, especially as they're going to a new church. But like you said, usually there's a craft there, and a lot of times you can get um, false teachers in high levels of authority simply because a lot of people like them. I mean, who are the most... Don't say any names. <laughs> who are the most prominent American church pastors? What are the first names that pop into your head? I said don't say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of, and over the years, there's been lots of people, different things. Who was who it before the Osteen types? Robert Tilton. Who was it before that? Jimmy Swaggart. Anyone know who it was before that? Benny Hinn? Do what? Or Roberts? Yeah, it's... it's I, I don't bring that up to make a list. I just bring it up to say it's, it's not hard to find. This is... False teachers are going to be a problem in every setting where people are gathering around the truth. But we have to remember the outcome of false teachers is God's judgment. In 2, 3 through 9, it says... And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And it goes on to explain that the destruction of these false teachers as, is as certain as three past acts of judgment. God will judge them like he judged the sinning angels. God will judge them the way he judged the ancient world of Noah. And God will judge them the way that he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. We have these very specific, concrete examples that Peter grabs onto saying, those false teachers have just as sure judgment waiting. But then he also utilizes that to say, and just as those, those angels were judged, so the, the, the non-evil angels were, were saved. And just as the world during Noah's time was, was killed in the flood, Noah and his family were saved. And just as in Sodom and Gomorrah, as that whole place was wiped out, Lot was spared. And so there's this picture of guaranteed judgment, but also guaranteed deliverance for those who are not perfect, but for those who are blameless, for those who are in Christ, for those who are of God, and for those who trust him. 
There's this, it closes with just this certainty in chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, even now, when you speak of being a Christian and God's judgment, people are like, what judgment? You're ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, y'all are really ridiculous people. There's been, I mean, we're 2,000 years after Jesus worse the judgment. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Just as sure as the world was flooded, the world will be consumed with fire. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, God's relationship with time should affect the way we view time. And we should perceive God's slowness, slowness not as slowness, but as what? Patience. When you hear people mock the slowness of God and the foolishness of considering an impending judgment, you should know as a Christian that God's being very patient with them and with you. And you have opportunity to speak truth. And the conclusion of this devastates, if you're a Christian, your life ought to be characterized by looking forward to a home of righteousness. In this world, you will never be perfectly spotless or blameless, but the struggle for spotlessness and the struggle for blamelessness, what Peter calls making every effort, will characterize you. The struggle does not make you a Christian. It is simply what the Christian does. The whole thrust of this letter is to bring the certainties of truth, the certainties of false teachers, and the certainties of judgment into the light so that we can and will make our salvation sure. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. My prayer tonight is obvious that we would make our calling and our election and our salvation sure. I pray that the truth about, um, the certainty about truth and the certainty about these false teachers and the certainty about judgment and the second coming would, would motivate us to make every effort to supplement all the things that are listed in the first chapter of this letter. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all might read ahead.
first, second, and third John for next week because we're going to fly through all of it.